talk about? Yes. I, I guess I just—it's more like an observation, but I've noticed. Uh, I usually, well, I've, I've gotten a habit of meditating first thing in the morning when I get up, and uh, when we can, Peggy and I take a uh, like a 45-minute walk early in the morning, and you know we're walking along and things will happen, like somebody will drive a huge, smelly, noisy diesel truck down the road and I'll throw an imaginary hand grenade, hand grenade at it and a kid will come riding his bicycle up the sidewalk and I'll get into confrontative mode or uh, we walk by a <coughs> business office where guys are using these leaf blowers which cause a lot of noise. There are all these uh, occasions for me to get angry mm -hmm. and irritated and I've noticed that after meditating that I seem to uh, be more aware of myself doing that. So, and it seems like it allows me to distance myself from that. And uh, sometimes, some days, it seems like you know, I'll say, "Wow, I seem to be almost a hundred percent bundle of emotional reactions." And I was thinking back to, to my meditating, and um, a lot of thoughts come along, and. Uh, you know, it seems like sometimes I'm constantly coming back to, to my breathing, but what I thought was is that, you know, every time I realize that I'm not watching my breathing and I come back to it, it's kind of like a little training event. And, and so this seems to carry over into the rest of my life. So, you know, I'm seeing myself being more observant of what I'm doing and it, it's like I don't have to uh, to be in control of trying to say, well, I'm going to be aware, but it's, it's, it's kind of like it, to some extent, it's sort of spontaneously happening, and it's just kind of filling up a little of the space that otherwise I would be engaged in, you know, my, my emotional reaction thing. So, uh, you know, so that's where I'm at with, with my meditation. And, you know, and so I, I, I guess I'm, uh, uh, I'm uh, in, encouraged by uh, you know seeing that sort of thing. Well, that's that's wonderful. I'm I'm glad to hear that. Yes, you've described that very well. The way that the, the process of becoming aware and and bringing your attention back to meditation translates into being aware. Uh, when, when you're not meditating. And, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned that in the context that you meditate first thing in the morning and then you go for a walk and you're very aware of it then because that, that gives you a really good opportunity to, to experience it just the way you described it. I can imagine that if after you meditated you went off and did something else for two or three hours and then went for a walk, it wouldn't be nearly as noticeable. So. Thinking of, I, I just read in the in the Pali or the the life of the Buddha, where I think the Buddha is giving some instruction to his son, and he, he said, uh, uh, "Practice compassion to to get rid of cruelty." So, you know, I get when I walk past the leaf blower guy, yeah. you know, instead of uh, shooting an imaginary gun at him, you know, I I. I think, well, you know, he has to be with this thing right next to him, and he's suffering from the noise and all the bad effects of that. And it, uh, you know, I mean, I'm just not all of a sudden 100% changing my way of looking at things, but, you know, I can see these small increments of my, my being able to uh, uh, to look at things in a, in a different way. And, and, you know, I don't expect uh, my meditation to uh, just, uh, you know, tomorrow I'm going to be, uh, you know, the right-hand man of the Buddha, but but I can see little things changing in my life, and, and uh, I think that's probably, uh, you know, that's that's enough to keep me meditating. That's wonderful. You were practicing just the right way. That, that is great. Keep it up. Yeah. <laughs> you, you are... 
You are becoming one who sits close to the Buddha. Thank you for thank you for sharing those observations. So, does anybody somebody else have something to say? Or? Yes. Well, I work in a middle school, and um, I often see aggressive action and fighting. And um, lately, I've been Well, you know, um, knock it off might not be right speech, but it is somewhat dependent upon how it's received. You know, uh, the, what you don't want to do is engage in harsh or abus abusive speech, and if if someone feels uh, Abused or, or you know, suffers some something because of what you say, then that's definitely not right speech. On the other hand, sometimes, especially dealing with uh, children or adolescents, uh, it's necessary to get their attention. <laughs> so, uh, somewhere in there is a line. Now, you know, there are probably better and more effective ways than yelling, knock it off. But, um, and, and you can probably think about that and see if you can discover what they are. But I wouldn't out of hand uh, feel badly about speaking in that way. I would just say, okay, this isn't probably the best way to do this, you know. If, if the Buddha was in charge of a group of middle school kids, how would he handle it? See if he can figure that out. <laughs> that's basically what I've been trying to figure out. You what? That's basically what I've been trying to figure that's out. Yeah, that's basically, yeah. So, you know, you want to you get the job done, but not, not in such a way that you're causing anyone distress or harm. Anyone have anything on their mind? Okay. Karma, not self, emptiness. It's not self. No, no, I have no question. It's not self. Um, you know, part of me really wants to just be a meditator and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, deal with everything deal with the whole um, sitting long enough to actually have some results. And then part of me wants to uh, be in the world, and it's, it's just dragged into the world, and um, you know, I think I have these obligations to make money and to, um, I don't know if there's a question in here. <laughs> do you feel um, like there's a conflict between those two? Well, yeah, because I want to do both of them, and um, and I think about renunciation, and I think, well, what is it I should renounce, and how much should I renounce, or you know, how much should I indulge this part of me that wants to sit and meditate, <laughs> you know, and and how how much should I take seriously my obligation to um, generate income and um, you know do things for the family, and well, anyway. I don't know, I think we've already gone through this, but it seems like I, I'm working with it a lot in my mind. Yeah. Well, that's a really good thing to be thinking about and working with in your mind. You see, 
Renunciation is essentially where you, that's essentially renouncing the mistaken view that you're going to make yourself happy through having a lot of things, making a lot of money, doing, you know, the, the things of the world are going to be, are going to provide a, a lasting source of happiness. At the same time, you know, there are, there are needs and there are responsibilities, but the thing that I, I'm glad you're thinking about these things, but the way to think about them is not should, should I do things to make money in the world or should I not, but rather how much money do I really need? You know, and, uh, how do you know? How long am I going to live? <laughs> well, you don't know how long that you're going to live, which makes the other part of it really important too, because that's the trade-off. You have you have only a certain amount of life, and you don't know the amount. And so, in order to make money, you are you're selling yourself, you're selling your time, you're selling your life in exchange for whatever money that you get. I mean, whatever form it takes, whether you're working for a wage or or, or whatever form all the time and energy that you put into an activity, the primary purpose of which is to generate some, some cash. You know, you've given something up, and the question is, what's the value of what you've given uh, in terms of the value of what you've received? And the idea that, well, money's always good, that's the mistaken idea that you renounce. Because really, what money does is allow you to have food and shelter. It allows you to be able to meditate. Or when your meditation is successful and you become uh, a self-sufficiently happy person, it allows you to be that kind of person. So that's that's really the purpose of money. So, But if the money gets in the way of you being able to do that, then it hasn't been worth it. It hasn't been a good exchange. So, yeah, you examine the question, well, how much money do you need? And it, there's not a, you know, you don't look at it and say, oh, well, that's it. That's the answer. <laughs> because it takes a long time to come with the answer. And probably if you keep thinking about it, the answer is going to change as, as certain things become more and more clear in your mind. You know, well, how much money do I need? Well enough to pay for this and that, and I have to have this, and I have to live in this kind of way. But then, really, the next level of the question is, okay, well, how important are those things? You know, uh, most of us start with, you know, the, the lifestyle we're leading right now. And at first glance, it seems like, well, yeah, I couldn't possibly get by with any less than that, or certainly not much less than that, right? And so that's the starting point. But you have to look at that, and you have to look at what those things actually give you, and what their real value is, and, and what they cost. And uh, to the degree that you discover that they're not that important, or you don't need that much of them, then you start to become more free from those things. You have more, more of your time that you can claim as your own, and less that you have to spend in, in making money. Uh, just to point out to you that you know, for in, in the time of the Buddha and for his followers, uh, they gave up everything and found that, that all that they needed was a bowl for people to put food on when they knocked on their door, and a set of robes, robes to protect them from the weather that they could sleep on and sleep under at night, which is probably not very many people are going to go that far these days. But it just—it's a good reminder that all you really need is is uh, your it, it is enough food to eat. Uh, enough to maintain good health, and, you know, uh, and enough comfort. So, so 
this is this is part of the of the practice, part of the path, is examining what you're doing with your time and what you're doing with your life. It's always a good question to ask yourself things like, if I only had a limited amount of time to live, what is really important to me? I used to do that. I used to imagine a scenario in my mind where Maybe I only had six months to live, and then make that as real as I could, and I decide, you know, what I would do. And all of a sudden, a lot of the things that I was doing appeared totally not worth bothering with. There's different ways of looking at it that can help to clarify. Can I say something yeah. to that too? Is also come, the, the matter of trust comes in. I know from, from my own life, I gave up major careers to do what I do now. And the more I set my own priorities really strongly and knowing that this is I had to follow, the more trust came in, in terms of the, that, that things will happen, that things will unfold, that things will provide for. And I still provide for myself, but in a much, much less uh, lesser way than when I had a lot of money. So the thing is, when you when you really open to that deep inner, you want that things happen on a different level, and you get a trust you've never known before. I do believe that. Would you agree with that? I would certainly agree with that. We limit ourselves very much by thinking that things have to happen in a particular way, or that the only way we can be happy is to have a certain thing, and that. Uh, that's very limiting because uh, our imaginations just aren't aren't that good and that big to cover all of the possible ways that things can unfold. Um, it's to have a certain amount of, of of trust. It makes perfect sense. You are you are a capable, competent person. You've lived this long and you've managed this well in the world. And, uh, you know, that's not going to change. When you revise your ideas of what your needs are and what you are willing to do in order to meet those needs, uh, that's not going to make you any less capable of, uh, of meeting your needs than you have been in the past. The things that you give up do open up new opportunities, new ways of thinking, new ways of being. So I think that was a, a very helpful comment, and, and to come from someone, you know, from someone who has made that kind of change themselves. And there's many ways to make the change too. One of the things that uh, a lot of us have in mind is that, you know, well, uh, you say you don't know how long you're going to live, but so uh, our life is defined in terms of there's this point in time where I'm going to retire and then I have to be well enough, off, well enough off when I retire that for however long I live I'm going to have all the things that I think I need. And that's very, that's very confining. You can, uh, you, you're working towards an imaginary future which may never come, but even if it does come, it's going to take a completely different form than you think it is. You're going to be a different person by then than you are now. Um, most people in this society have far, far more than they really need. And it's more to their detriment than their benefit. We, we are owned and controlled by our, our possessions. You know, if you have a house, you have a mortgage. If you have a car, even if you don't owe money on it, you have to maintain it. You have to keep, keep it in good repair and things like that. And all of the other possessions you have. You know. If you've got a television, well, you know, what's the point of having a television if you don't have cable service or satellite or a DVD player. So you have to have those as well. Even if you don't use them very often, you know, 
So you end up gradually you find yourself in a prison of things that you are committed to maintaining constantly. So, you know, you've got a TV and the cable service and the DVD player, and then the DVD player is working. Well, you have no choice but to go out and buy a new one, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it's funny when we think about it, but in in the way that we live our lives, that's exactly when the DVD player quits working. It doesn't occur to us that maybe we don't need it, you know, or or even the TV or anything else. Instead, it's automatic. It's knee-jerk. Well, I don't know. That's going to be another what two, three hundred bucks. I don't know if I can afford it, but. Maybe I'll put it on the credit card. So, and stuff, you know, I've got all kinds of stuff that just sits there because basically I don't want to waste the time it takes to get rid of it. <laughs> so be careful of stuff. I'm glad that, you know, the important thing that I'm really glad to hear is that uh, every time I hear from someone that uh, they feel that some part of them feels like, you know, they would like to have more time to practice. And, that, you know, it's, I think that's wonderful. That is, that is that part of you wanting to reclaim your life for your own. And, uh, take charge of it in a much more deeply fulfilling way than, than uh, running around fulfilling some kind of uh, idea that has descended upon you of what, what you should be and how you should live your life. Uh, have any of you ever seen a movie called Revolutionary Road? You've seen it? Right, nobody else has. Well, the reason that I thought of it is that basically what this movie is about is a, uh, a young couple in, oh, they mean right after the Second World War, the late 40s. And they get married. And uh, they have dreams. He has dreams. He saw Paris when he was. Uh, a soldier you know, during the war. Uh, but he's got a job and then she gets pregnant and then they buy this house. Uh, it, it, this is in New York. He works in New York. They buy this house on Revolutionary Road in one of these suburbs where he takes the train every day to go to work. And their life gradually descends into this thing where you know, uh, the house itself is, you know, the whole process of finding the house that fulfills the image of what the house that people like them are supposed to have raise their kids in. And, and, you know, with the barbecue and the neighbors and the way they, and of course they end up with all of their, all of their dreams are consumed and they find themselves trapped in this really stereotypical kind of uh, 1950s uh, suburban commuter couple. Uh, she's the housewife, her dreams of, uh, of being a, an actress in the theater, gone up in smoke instead, you know, it's taking the kids to soccer and school and cooking and cleaning and stuff like that. And they feel very, very trapped. And that's, that's why it came to my mind, is that whole scenario. But because it, 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 it paints the picture very clearly of what happens to so many of us. We have an expectation of who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to live our lives. 
and it begins to define us and it begins to take over our lives and our lives no longer belong to us because we have to have the job because we have to pay for this kind of a house and this kind of a neighborhood and, and, if, and we have kids. Why do we have kids? Because we decided to have kids or, or because everyone expected us to have kids. But anyway, now we've got kids, well, you know, the kids have to have piano lessons or go to Little League or whatever, you know, all the different kinds of things that, you know, do we really decide those things or really choose those things or we just somehow find ourselves overtaken by a lot of ideas that uh, didn't really come from us in the first place and we're prisoners of them. But we think we, think we need, we can't afford to change our job or to do something different because uh, we have this, have to have this kind of house. And we have kids, and the kids have to have these kinds of things. And because we've got this kind of job, we have to dress in a particular way. And because we live in the neighborhood we do, we're expected to do sort of certain things and own certain things and socialize in certain ways. And you see what I mean? The whole thing. So the degree that anyone starts to find their way out, I think it's absolutely wonderful. I mean, this is the only life that you've got. I mean, let's forget this whole rebirth, birth, reincarnation thing. You know, this is your life, and you don't know how much of it you have. And um, is it is it fulfilling you the way that it could? Are you fully satisfied with it? And if it's not, why not? What can you do about it? Because, you know, your life is your one greatest creative act. Maybe you'll write some books that get famous or, you know, do something else, invent a better mousetrap or whatever. But they aren't really your greatest creative work. Your life is your greatest creative work. Your, your life is really the greatest uh, art. You know? So you may paint pictures or, or carve things out of wood, but you're, you, the real art is your life and the way you live it. Every moment of every day, how true you are to yourself, and how, how well you, uh, well, how well do you live your life in, in every way, in terms of your relationships. In a sense, your responsibility in this world is to lead the best possible life that you can. And that doesn't necessarily mean to make as, money, as much money or rise as high as you can in your career or to live in the best neighborhood that you can get into uh, by struggling hard enough. You know. What are the things that are really important in life? So, I know I talked uh, a few weeks about, uh, a, a few weeks ago, about the option that we have, which is making our spiritual practice the number one priority in our life. And really, your spiritual practice is, is the creative activity that I'm talking about. Because your true spiritual practice is one that will produce all these kinds of results. You will live your life every moment of it in the best possible way that you can. And your interactions with other people will be on the basis of, of that spirituality. And the actions and whatever it is that you do in this life, and whatever legacy that you leave behind, which is not very important, really, but whatever legacy that you do leave behind should be a reflection of how true you've been to yourself and, and 
living that kind of life. So make your life a work of art. Make that your number one priority. Look at all these other things that are keeping you from that. And when the thought comes that, yeah, but I have to, then don't surrender to that. You know, just keep coming back to it and say, well, okay, maybe. Do I really, though? Why do I have to? Is this the only way? Is this the best way? The goal of the spiritual life is to be truly happy. That's what the Buddha always told people when they said, what do you teach? He said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering, which the other part of that is living the truly happy and fulfilled life. It means coming to that place where your happiness is not dependent upon anything outside of yourself. Which, of course, means that it's much more easy for you to, to deal with effectively and appropriately whatever does arise in the course of your life. Because you have found a true inner happiness and an inner peace and you're not relying on anything outside of yourself for that happiness, so it can't be taken away from you. And the other thing that is, the, the goal of this is that you are no longer compelled by things like uh, greed, desire, lust, aversion, hatred, anger, and things like this. So that you for one thing, you're, you're free of the dissatisfactoriness that is implied in, in all of those things and the constantly wanting things, in the constantly wanting things to be different. Instead, you're in the place of accepting what is and maybe doing whatever you can to make things better, but coming from a place that uh, uh, inner stability, inner happiness, and inner peace, and independence of what's outside of you. So that you can, you can act on the world, you can act on society, you can act on other people in a way that uh, may bring about some positive change, some improvement. You can come from a place of compassion, but you're not, you're not, your happiness is not dependent upon the outcome of those actions. It, is, it can only be enhanced if you succeed in helping somebody else, but your happiness cannot be taken away if your actions don't bring the kind of result that you hope they do. So, the spiritual path is to become uh, a being who is really not a separate self filled with need and suffering from lack, but being an integral part of the whole that is the universe and taking complete joy in being that. And in being the conscious entity that you are, experiencing the world that you do and in acting in the most creative and productive way that you can. So that's the, that's the goal and the fruit of the spiritual path. Beats anything else. Yes. You want to change the topic? Uh, okay. <laughs> Anybody else mind? We change the topic? Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's change the topic. Okay, well, I don't know what you think. I just, I, I know I had questions the last several Thursdays, and I, I was actually thinking of you would be in the dining and getting out of that. But I think I filled it down some way. Um, and I don't know if I've heard you talk about this exactly, but I, <clears throat> since the last retreat, she knows a difficult retreat. 
it's really hard for me to gauge kind of my my life in, in, um, in the context of my life over a long period of time. So a lot of times, you know, I'm in a bad place. I'm very overwhelmed by that sense, and obviously it paints my, my sense of my history and all that. But I do get the sense, like, especially since this last retreat, I've been in a much darker place, like, more and more uh, just kind of consistently. But I also feel like that's something that's kind of part of my temperament and it's something I come back to a lot. Yeah. And you've talked about it, and you've talked about it in the context of your of just your sitting practice of how to progress um, along the path, along your meditation practice. You've got to go through these things and you've got to kind of confront them over and over again if necessary until you're able to just, I guess, really see whatever the source is and accept it and let it pass through. I, I'm not I'm paraphrasing what you said, but that's how you described it. I'm wondering, I'm more like just for kind of confirmation because it's part of what comes out of this experience is it sucks a lot of the um, enthusiasm out of my practice because it's like, well, this sucks, <laughs> you know? Yes, I mean, I'm trying not to suffer and I'm suffering more, but by the same token, I know that I'm a much more self-aware person now like over, over the last year or so or a couple of years. I mean, it's really clear that I live my life much more clearly um, and I'm much more present for it. And I know that's part of the reason probably why all this stuff is in my face. And also because it's I'm wondering if you could talk more about maybe your experience too, because that's always helpful to me, but also just other people along this path that where there is this period of like a dark night of the soul or whatever, but maybe a little more concrete terms of that I'm going through this process of like purification or whatever, where it really just feels hard to get perspective um, and to see the other side of it. And um, because one of the, I mean, like I said, a lot of doubt comes out about this. Well, the, the thing, the difficulty is that it's getting to the place of seeing that we're doing this to ourselves. And, and that's the hard part. Uh, it, you know, uh, it will keep coming up. It's, there's no, it, it, there's no choice about it. Uh, there are many different forms that suffering can take in, in every different individual. And so what we can generalize about them all, including what you're talking about, which is being a, a, a dark night of the soul, and you said that your life has been dark, that you're it's sapping the enthusiasm out, and things like that. This is one of the many, many different ways that uh, I, I'm going to use a different kind of language. I'm going to stop saying that, that we do it to ourselves because that's where it's that kind of that speech reflects the uh, error that's in it. That your mind does it to itself. Everybody's suffering, no matter what form it takes, is generated by their own mind. And that, I think, is an absolutely incontestable fact. I don't, I don't think anybody can say anything different. They may initially try to say, well, no, no, no. I'm suffering because the world's like this. But the fact is that that may, it may be because the world's like this that their mind has decided to flood itself with this uh, experience of suffering. But nevertheless, the suffering comes from your mind, from absolutely nowhere else. And you don't decide to suffer, obviously. But that's the, the first step is just recognizing that you're doing it to yourself. Coming out of, I'm, I'm interpreting my reality at all times through my mind. 
used by guards and they don't have enough to eat and they're forced to do labor every day. There's all kinds of different ways that, that people can suffer. But the only way that you can really overcome that is to break through to that place of realizing that uh, the reality is that all that suffering is empty, it's created by the mind, and when that understanding can become profound enough, then that very part of your mind that's creating all that suffering says, hey, enough's enough, and it quits doing it, and it goes away. And that's, that's, that really is the only way out of it. Are you you're familiar, I think, with Eckhart Tolle? His, his story is, he experienced this terrible depression that just went on and on and on and totally paralyzed him and, you know, he couldn't do anything until, you know, finally one, one day there was this realization that, that happened. And it's basically a realization of the same things that we're talking about here. He realized that you know, as he puts it, he realized that all there was was the, the, the present moment and discovered that there really was no suffering in the present moment except for what his mind created. And when he realized that, his mind stopped creating it. So he had that sudden liberation. So that's what we're all trying to get through. Whether we're suffering the sort of deep chronic depression that uh, Eckhart Tolle was, you know, or whether ours is a more mundane and kind of existential uh, dissatisfaction and frustration and, and life seems like just a point of struggle, you know, no matter what, we've all got to get to that same place. But basically, uh, well, it's, it's basically the, the three noble truths. The first one is recognizing that suffering as opposed to pain uh, suffering is something that is generated by the mind. That is generated by the mind because we reject what is. Because we crave things to be different than they are rather than being fully present, being in a state of total acceptance. And that when we can be fully present in a state of total acceptance, then we eliminate suffering. We may be left with pain, you know, if, if you're suffering the kind of depression that Eckhart Tolle did, then the release from suffering comes with no residue of physical pain. If you happen to be uh, in a prison somewhere in a third world country, that same release may come, but you may still be subject to abuse and malnutrition and, and having to do hard labor uh, in, in uh, weather without adequate clothing. But you've discovered that although you still have those painful, physically unpleasant conditions, there's no need to suffer any longer. That it's possible to live in a state of happiness. So it's that, it's that liberation is that extreme. So Whatever suffering you're experiencing, accept the message, the teaching that it's, it's giving to you, and, and try to try to penetrate that enough to really understand uh, the the truth of suffering and the truth of the cause of suffering, because it's a lesson every day that it lasts. It's a lesson, and most likely whether you discover these truths or not, you're going to experience a reprieve from the suffering that you have. But that reprieve, no matter what the causes of the suffering that you are experiencing now, that reprieve will be temporary. And if it's not the same suffering, it will be some other suffering that comes along to replace it. So focus on what, what you can learn, what insight you can gain, from the suffering that you have while you have it. It, it. it really is 
potentially a gift if it allows you to gain that insight and to have that realization that will permanently free, free, free you from all causes of suffering. So as much as I, I'd love to be able to just reach out to you and remove the darkness from your life, I can't do that. The only, I, I know that. I know that you know that. But since I can't do that, the good news is that you can. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you know, it's going to happen right away. But you can do that. And to the degree that you realize that, I think it might make the, the darkness and the suffering that you experience now easier to bear. If you can just keep in mind that to the degree that you identify with it, the worse it is. And to the degree that you can objectify it as, you know, this is something that my mind is creating. This is something that my haywire brain is coming into existence. You know, this, this darkness that I'm experiencing, this despair that seems to penetrate even when I look at a, uh, at a, a, a beautiful flower or, or a, a blue sky or I hear the sound of a bird singing and, and I, this despair that even penetrates into those precious experiences is not me. It's not self. It's, uh, it's just a creation of a misguided process of my mind. And, and it's good to see that because it reminds me how I must get to the place where I'm no longer subject to those kinds of things. The, the, the truth of suffering is that although unpleasant experiences are absolutely unavoidable if you are in a physical body in a physical world, that everything that we call suffering is totally avoidable, that it can eventually be completely transcended, and that the only reason that the unpleasant physical experiences are difficult for us to deal with is because the mind generates suffering in response to them. And so that, that, is, the, that is the key understanding of, of the truth of suffering. And it's, it's a truth that you need to keep on understanding better and better and clearer and clearer until the day comes that you're no longer subject to it. Hard to remember when you feel great. Easy to remember, or easier to remember when you feel lousy. Yeah. I wonder how you feel in that context about the whole realm of myths and mythology. I'm thinking of, about um, of Carl Jung and his archetypes, and that they talk about the rites of passage when you go through the darkness of the soul, and you have to do it in order, especially when you're seeking. And I know from my own life, my own history, when I was in very deep, dark places and I learned about this, it extracted from my own suffering and I really felt that was part of the right passage to go through. So yes. how does it... Um, well, it's the same thing. But what, we're talking, what I've been talking to you about the last few minutes is what you might call the ultimate rite of passage. The ultimate, the, the ultimate dark night of the soul is the one that leads to the permanent awakening, to the, to the dawning of, of the light that will never dim. But we go through the same process uh, in, in lesser degrees. And, uh, you know, we have various rites of passage. A, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of our best literature uh, and mythology is about those kinds of rites of passage. Uh, we have to learn to deal with these things, uh, with with the things that are inevitably a part of life. You know, uh, the first rite of passage usually is that from childhood to uh, to becoming an adult, and 
that's that's filled with all of its own uh, potential for for fear and, and darkness. And as a matter of fact, in uh, in societies that used to do that as a as a formal initiation process, um, at least for the initiation of males, the older males would go to a lot of trouble to produce uh, as much fear and uncertainty in, uh, in the young man as they possibly could to intensify that. So, and the whole idea is that the young man in this process discovers their own inner strength. And this is what makes the boy become a man, is when he finds he has the inner resources to conquer uh, his own uh, his own fear, his own darkness, and, and so forth. And so, it's it's exactly the same thing that we're talking about, but we're talking about it in the uh, ultimate. So suffering has its place, though, to get through it, right? Well, that that's right. Yeah, and, you know, if if there were no suffering. We wouldn't need suffering to bring us to overcome its causes. <laughs> but there is suffering. So you know, we we can either we can either sink into despair or we can go into a stoic resignation and just accept it, which is what many people do. Like a sort of bitter resignation to the fact that life is disappointing. Life is painful. Uh, there is, is illness and, and aging and loss and grief, and, and so all there is is this this bitter acceptance that that there's nothing better. But the other thing that we can do is we can become the triumphant hero. We can become the warrior who overcomes and transcends this once and for all. We can become the victor, and that's. That is what the unenlightened being is called, is the victor. And so, by embarking upon a spiritual path at all, <clears throat> we have set out, uh, in a sense, to take a warrior's path. So, instead of resigning ourselves to the, the bitterness of being the victim of life's pain and circumstances, we have set out to on the path of the warrior to overcome that, to transcend that, to be, to become the victorious one. And so, you know, you guys are a great bunch of warriors. Whether you've done it by choice or whether uh, you've been whether it's been by circumstance, you've been put into the situation that's made you recognize that, you know, that I will not accept this. You know, there's, I, I wish I had access to it, but there, is a, there was a quote by a talk that uh, uh, Joan Halifax Roshi gave, and she spoke of, you know, we lead our petty little lives with our petty little concerns and our petty little friendships and our petty little jobs until we die our petty little deaths. And then she shouted out, I won't have it. <laughs> and that's exactly it. That's the cry of the spiritual warrior. They look at the life on Revolutionary Road. You know, they look at the petty this and the petty that and everything else, and the surrender to being a victim. And they say, no, not for me. It's absolutely not for me. But the path of the warrior is one where instead of avoiding the pain, you confront the pain. And if there's anybody that can do it, it's Adam. He will come out victorious in the end.
as will you all.